Super Talk Mississippi media production. State Treasurer David McRae has put millions back into the hands of Mississippi citizens, expanding the state's affordable college and career savings program and also returning record amounts of unclaimed money. Check out how Treasurer David McRae's office can help you, your business, or your organization. Treasury.ms.gov. Howdy, howdy. It's Rhino here, and I wanted to say thank you for listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Get ready, get ready to go beyond the headlines and join a meaningful conversation with people from around the state. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Everyone and welcome to Midday Super Talk Mississippi. I'm your host Gerard Gibbard, along with a Rhino in the Element Wealth Studios, guiding you through the middle of your day with facts, fodder, and fine music. It is a Tuesday, and there's some foreign matter falling from the sky out there. Rhino I had to rush to the window to see what it was all about. What was it? This is this wet stuff that comes from the clouds. It looks like, Uh-oh. and uh, it falls in these little. What would you call it? Would you call it droplets? I think it's. I yeah. think they call it rain. <laughs> well, normally I rush to the window to see the sun, as it was the case uh, back in August. We had such a rainy August, dreary August, honestly. But today, just looking at the radar, we got a line of storms that uh, are moving through the Magnolia State. Really unusual line in that virtually paralleling our borders, right? I mean, just north to south, almost in a direct line, moving through and looking at it now, based on our position here in central Mississippi, looks like it has already moved to the east of us. And that's the forecast, is it not? Just to keep pushing through the state, clear out, get a little chillier? Yeah, skinny little squall line with a front, and uh, you're going to get some rain dumped on you for anywhere between 10 to 30 minutes, and then it'll be on about its rat killing, and you'll have a cooler afternoon. Yeah. Looks like, in fact, uh, I-55 is like Drake, directly over I-55, all the way from the Tennessee line on south of Jackson. So, anyhow, much needed, though, right? Unfortunately, what we learned last week, rain here doesn't really help the situation with the Mississippi River. Paul Hollis on the levee board was on middays last week and informed where we need that rain is in the Ohio Basin, I think is what he said. And uh, the forecast, the long-range forecast in that area still shows it's going to be dry. So I know that's a problem. The, the photos, the images of the river, vessels in it now on ground or stunning, honestly. I saw one yesterday. You've probably seen it. Somebody's on the one of the giant props standing on it, right? The vessel's in the river. What yeah, was isn't the that river? one at the uh, museum in New Orleans? Is that where it is? Okay. I think so, but I think it's it's not kept in dry dock. It's kind of like the, the USS Alabama where it's in shallow water 
but the water's receded. Wow. It is unbelievable. If it's the one I think you're talking about. Yeah, I think so. On the program today, Tom Nahart, CEO of PosiGen Solar, is going to talk about making solar power more accessible to small businesses and families. Give some background on their company, PosiGen Solar. At 11.05, candidate for Mississippi's 3rd Congressional District, Shawaski Young, running as a Democrat. His opponent, of course, the incumbent, Republican Michael Guest. We are exactly two weeks away from the midterm elections. It's just hard to believe it's here already. Two weeks, 14 days. November the 8th, Americans will go to the polls to vote. Every, of course, seat in the House of Representatives, all 435 up for election, being contested. I think 30-some-odd seats in the Senate, but really, that comes down to about six, seven key races tonight. One of those key races in Pennsylvania, the Keystone State, there will be a debate, a debate between the Democrat John Fetterman and the Republican Mehmet Oz. I uh, have done a little bit of homework to figure out how to tune into that. Looks like I can stream it on the ABC affiliate. Best I can tell. Supposedly. Yeah, I'm going to try to do that tonight. I I believe it will be entertaining at a minimum. Of course, I always like to just see what these folks have to say. But, of course, winning that seat on the Republican side does not produce a net gain in terms of the Senate, it just keeps us level because that seat is being vacated by Republican Pat Toomey, who is moving on. Where Republicans could pick up seats, let's talk first about the other two seats that Republicans need to win just to stay even. That would be in Ohio, in terms of the ones that are high profile and close. Ohio, where you got J.D. Vance on the Republican ticket, versus Congressman Tim Ryan, who just pretty much says whatever he wants to, depending on the crowd, the audience. And then Wisconsin turned into a a bit of a contest. Incumbent Senator Ron Johnson taking on former Lieutenant Governor Mandela Barnes, who honestly is a card-carrying racist and communist. I know people say, that's hyperbole, Gerard, that's just not true. I don't know. Go read some of the the stuff that guy said. Watch some of the videos. And I don't mean just during the campaign. Look at him and his history. He's a pretty left-leaning individual. Wants to empty out the prisons, of course. So Mr. Young will be on the program at 11.05. And then at 12.05, Forrest Stigpen, Senior Advisor for Empower Mississippi, He'll talk about some prison reforms in Mississippi and a front porch piece that he wrote, he drafted, published about crime spikes in relation to prison reform, and he'll he'll shed the light on that. So once again, two weeks out, hard to believe, we got the midterms. Now, we know, of course, that this coming Saturday 
ESPN Game Day is headed to the bold new city, Jackson, Mississippi, our capital city, for the Jackson State game versus the visiting Southern University. That should be quite the, the event. So the mayor has already gone on record and somewhat warning that the water system is at risk with the influx of such a large number of people, especially the 55,000 that are likely to attend the game. He said the, the system, uh, did the mayor yesterday, said the system was on the precipice of failure this past weekend. So he's warning right now, hey, might not have any water. Wouldn't that be something? That would not be a great way to welcome in the ESPN game day contingent. Welcome to Jackson. Hope you got your water. Wouldn't be good. But the mayor's already warning. Now, I believe, honestly, I know you guys may find this shocking. This is politically motivated shock. Because this mayor continues to point fingers at everybody <laughs> except himself as to the root cause of the water problem. In the meantime, the Mississippi State Conference of the NAACP and the Jackson City Branch of the NAACP hosted a town hall. This was yesterday at New Hope Baptist Church to update Jackson residents on the Title VI complaint for investigation into the state of Mississippi's, quote, gross mishandling, the state's gross mishandling of the water crisis in Jackson. I'm looking at some photos of the event yesterday. Uh, so we, of course, discussed this, and I believe Congressman Benny Thompson was in attendance, by the way. We, of course, discussed this with former U.S. Attorney Mike Hurst yesterday. The EPA, as you know by now, has launched an investigation into the Mississippi Department of Environmental Quality, the Department of Health, as to their handling of federal funds designated for municipal water systems. And I know it comes as a bit of a shock, but they maintain that the distribution of those funds was racially motivated and unfair. It lacked equity. Jeez, so get so tired of it. It's so long in the tooth. I got a lot more to say about that later on in the program, including I am going to try to compose myself and break down President Biden's speech Friday, and then he kind of followed up on it yesterday about the economy and his prediction about the economy should Republicans take the House and or the Senate. And I'm going to kind of link it to the Ten Commandments. You'll understand what we're talking about when we get into it. Tom Nahart, CEO of PosiGen Solar, up next. we got a break right here from the Element Well Studios. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. What? This is so awesome. On Super Talk Mississippi. 
to Middays from the Element Well Studios. A little cream bumping us into this segment. Thank you for that, Rhino. Joining us now, Tom Nahart, CEO of Posigen Solar. Tom, thanks for joining us. Did I pronounce your, right, uh, your last name correctly, sir? Yes, Thomas Nahart. Uh, Nyhart, gotcha. You did a, did, a, did a much better job than a lot of people do. So. <laughs> and by the way, great music coming in. I, I could have listened to that for a little bit longer. Uh, absolutely. Thank you for having me on your show, Gerard. You bet. All right, so tell us about uh, your organization, Posigen. I see it. Uh, you've got a registered trademark associated with the brand name there. So it is a brand uh, that you have the rights to. Tell us about it. So we put Posigen together 11 years ago. You know, we were post-Katrina and really focused on helping rebuild the New Orleans community. And there wasn't a lot we could do at the time, right? People people were struggling to get back on their feet. My wife and I thought, well, how about if we put money back in people's pockets? And how can we do that? And we figured out, you know, solar had a pretty good tax credit at the time down here in Louisiana. And we thought if we paired solar with energy efficiency, we could make a real difference. And, you know, fast forward to where we are now, we got over 20,000 customers, and our average customer saved close to $700 net after they paid us uh, in last year. So putting money back in people's pockets and allowing them to spend their money on what they want instead of sending it to the utility companies seemed to make a lot of sense. So $700 a year, right, on an annual savings basis? Yep. I mean, look, sometimes we hit a home run and people can save a thousand, two thousand dollars a year. Sometimes we hit a single and they only save a couple hundred bucks a year. But we do have a savings guarantee that says that within your first year, you're going to pay us less than you take off your total utility spend. Okay. And it's not just about solar. It's also about the energy efficiency work we do in the home and that reduce your cost of however you, you know, power your home, whether it's uh, gas or fuel oil we have up in the Northeast, uh, natural gas, propane, or electricity. Okay. If there is such a thing, Tom, what's the average cost to install solar power for typical home, if there is such a thing as a typical home? What, what is your average transaction size? Maybe that's a better way to ask it. That, that's a great question, Gilbert. We do a, a solar and energy efficiency lease. So basically, we're installing the solar system and doing all the energy efficiency upgrades, and then we're leasing that service to the customer. And in Mississippi, our average system size is about an 8KW system, and I believe it's about $80 a month. And so we hope to take, you know, somewhere around 110 to $140 a month off a customer's utility bill, putting that money back in their pocket, letting them spend that money on school supplies for the kids, groceries, uh, necessities in people's homes. The majority of our clients um, are low-income families. We really work with working-class families, blue-collar families, even people on fixed income and retirees. Okay, so you're, you're structuring the transaction, if I understand you correctly, as a lease. Correct. And, and is that a lease, is that like a capital lease, an operating lease? Does it have a term where the lease payment uh, expires and the equipment, the assets, have been acquired through the lease period, or do you just is this permanent? You're very, 
Good question, Peter Gerard. That's an excellent question. Our lease program is for a 20-year lease. It is an operating lease, so we're going to service, maintain, insure, and monitor the system because, in actuality, what we're doing is we're providing a service, right? The service is to create power on the homeowner's roof. It's to reduce the amount of power the home consumes by the energy efficiency work that we do in the house. Okay, so you're uh, essentially you're selling it as a service rather than uh, a capital equipment investment that would have to be financed or just paid for with cash, and and then just realize the savings and recover that investment over some period of time. So you're you're essentially selling it as a service. I assume that also means that uh, that includes whatever maintenance is necessary on the yeah, equipment. Absolutely. Absolutely. We're going to take care of the system. <clears throat> you know, if we have, we have a, uh, an issue with a storm like we had with Ida, um, last year, we, nobody has to pay to have their system fixed. We repair the system at, at no cost. We insure the system. And of course, we're monitoring those systems. So we know if the, there's a problem with one of the panels. We know if there's a, an issue with, um, the solar production and we're able to react to it and usually be out to the customer's home before they even know they have a problem. I got you. What uh, So what is your geographic coverage, Tom? So we started in Louisiana. You know, Louisiana used to have a, a pretty good tax credit for solar. Um, they also have what we call retail net metering, where, you know, a lot of working families aren't home during the middle of the day. Their kids are in school. They're working at the factory or at their job. And so the, the solar is producing the most amount of electricity during that peak time during the middle of the day. Mm-hmm. And so that solar gets pushed back into the grid and goes to the next-door neighbor's house or the, you know, the little grocery store across the street. And then at night when people come home, they're basically pulling their power back off the grid. And we had a retail net metering program. You got paid the same amount what you sold to the grid and what you, what you brought back. And, and so we built a pretty good company down here and serviced a lot of customers. And then those rules started to change, and we started to look outside of the state. And we went up into the Northeast, and uh, we have offices in Connecticut, and we've got offices in New Jersey, uh, Massachusetts, and Philadelphia. Um, we've also done a little bit of work over in Florida. But, you know, we've been working real close with the PSC down here in Mississippi, and I'll tell you, Brandon Presley and Brett Bailey have done a really good job putting together, we think, a, uh, a program that makes a lot of sense for the families in Mississippi, and now we're we're increasing our presence in Mississippi. In fact, uh, we're committed to uh, opening up new locations in Mississippi and, and creating a lot of local jobs here for both sales and operations and maintenance here in the state. Gotcha. So um, the net metering in the state of Mississippi is structured a little different, correct? It's not a dollar-for-dollar sell back to the grid. No, no, we, we wish it was. You know, most of the most of the states in the country do have what we call retail net metering, where you pay the same for the power that you push on the grid as if they pulled off. Um, and, and, you know, we think that me- that makes a lot of sense. Mississippi did not have that. And, um, you know, we work closely with the utility companies. And I can't say anything bad about the utility companies. They're in business to make money, and they've got investors that they have to report to. Uh, but I think that they, they worked with us and were straightforward in their negotiations with us and the, the PSC. And I think we came to something that we could live with. And, and I think that it's going to make a difference for the families in Mississippi. And it's very much focused on, on helping blue-collar families, helping working-class families in the state. 
Gotcha. What do you think about the uh, enhancements to uh, solar uh, investment credits recently enacted in the Inflation Reduction Act? Well, we don't call it the Inflation Reduction Act. We call it the Climate Bill. <laughs> I think that's probably more appropriate. We do the same thing here. But that is the official name of it, from the government at least. What, what do you think about those enhancements? How will this affect you know, your business, I, for example? Well, it's going to help pretty much every solar company. But when you think about a solar company like ours that has struggled for years because we focus on helping working-class families and we don't, we don't approve people based upon their FICO score or their income. We think that, you know, we need to look at how much money we can save them. So our underwriting process is only about can we save that customer money. And so we've been helping families that have really needed that help. And, and I can tell you lots of stories about, you know, some of the successes that we've had over the years. So this bill seems to be a way to try and invest more in underserved communities and, and help working class families. So, you know, we like the provisions that, around solar that surround the low-income family uh, solar products such as ours. Um, we think that we're investing both in, in jobs, in the families that we serve, and, of course, in the climate. And, and I think, you know, whatever side of the aisle you're on, no, nobody argues about the fact that, you know, clean energy is good energy as long as it makes economic sense. Have you seen uh, an increase in business, Tom, as a result of the passage of this, uh, as you described it, climate bill? We've seen an increase in people's interest in companies such as ours. The actual execution of this bill and, and rules and everything surrounded don't even start until January 1. Right. And some of the things around low-income families and the tax credit around that, uh, we probably won't see those rules until mid-February or so. I, I know Treasury's got a lot of work in front of them. Um, and we're all waiting to see the new rules come out. And I think once we see those rules come out and how they affect, you know, how we price to our customer and how we can expand our footprint um, into markets that we might not have been in before gotcha. uh, because it didn't make a lot of uh, fiscal sense, uh, I think that's when we're going to see that, that upswing. Gotcha. Tom, appreciate the update. Good luck to you and all that. Tom Nyhart, CEO of PosiGen Solar. Thanks for coming on Middays, Tom. Thank you, Gerard. We look forward to... Uh, building a great business in Mississippi and creating a lot of jobs. Appreciate it. Middays will step aside. We're coming right back as Rhino bumps us out with Here Comes the Sun. I think it is coming. Stay with us. Started today. It's time for Middays with Gerard Gibbert on Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back. 
back, everyone. Midday Super Talk Mississippi. The Youngbloods. Oh, that was perfect for the era there. <laughs> Peace and love, man. That's where they wore the Nehru smocks, remember? <laughs> no, no, I don't remember. You don't remember. I do, unfortunately. <laughs> Quit reminding me I'm old. <laughs> That was great. The Youngbloods. They make good music, though. Um, we don't make music that at least has kind of a, a message of love anymore, though. I mean, so at least the crazies of the 60s, it was more about love and peace. Now it's, it's not. It's hostile. It's violence, right? It's profanity. What we talked about yesterday, it's the transgender playing the piano with their male anatomy on television in the UK. It's nuts. I mean, that's not harmful. And all they were really doing was protesting a stupid war. For the most part, right? Back then, the argument against the establishment. The man, oh shoot, I got something going off here. The mute sound, hold on. Got it. That's the cops promo that came up on one of my sites. <laughs> oh, well. Let's see uh, on the ceasefire text line. In a second, I'm going to get to Joe Biden and his remarks about the economy. I, I, I will admit I'm putting it off a little bit because I'm going to get really fired up. And I'm trying to compose myself and muster up all the necessary energy to debunk this fool. But on the ceasefire text line, since it is a lease, do people get a yearly energy tax credit? I'm not exactly sure what you're asking there. There are tax credits, of course, available for the purchase of solar panels, and that is figured into the lease that Mr. Nyhart was talking about. And it is a subscription sort of service. So, And what that really does is it, it softens the the big one-time expense. It's actually not a bad idea. And I will tell you, I just replaced a uh, an air conditioning unit at my house. Needed to be replaced. House 13 years old. Have four. Had to replace one. Ex- there's expensive. You know, the compressors and what's the stuff up in the attic? Got the compressors outside, right? Evaporators? I don't know. Whatever they call all those uh, ducts and I can't remember. Somebody out there I know will tell us. But nonetheless, had to do a lot of that rework. It's expensive. So the HVAC dealer, installer, has a new program. Very similar. You just pay a flat amount per month. And you're out of the business of ever having to come out of pocket to replace them. When they wear out, they take care of it. And all the maintenance associated with that. Anything that happens, all covered. So it's a, and, and this is a trend that's been happening and, and gaining traction uh, in, our, uh, in our country for, for some time across a, a spectrum of purchases and industries. It's, it's been big time prevalent in the IT industry and really gaining a lot of traction to the point where these big enterprises, when I exited the business, rather than spending an unbelievable amount of money when they had to do what we call forklift upgrades, which would just be for server storage network, et cetera, and all the other uh, add-on technologies. 
It would just be a situation where you would subscribe to it. And I'm not talking about a lease. You just pay a, a flat monthly amount, if you will, and, and that would cover the product, the physical infrastructure, and all the services. And it's just, you got that in perpetuity, essentially. Back in the mainframe days, IBM would essentially give you the mainframe, but you paid an incredible fee every month for leasing, licensing fees for the operating system. Similar deal. Anyhow, so I, I think what you're seeing here with PosiGen Solar, you're going to start seeing a whole lot more of that just in the energy world. Uh, you're going to start seeing it, I believe, in the appliance world as well. So anyhow, it's just the vehicles uh, are headed in that direction. Rather than this one-time purchase, you just drive it till the wheels come off. I'm not talking about just leases. I'm talking about like fees for permanent transportation services, sort of, if you will. Starting to see that crop up. Just a, just an interesting new consumption model, essentially. Which will be interesting to see how that does in the realm of transportation, because it's been tried before with e-bikes and scooters, and that didn't seem to end well. Right. I agree. But we'll see. Cedric and Dito says the air handler's what's in the in the attic. Duck, uh, Thompson Greenwood says the ducts tied to the box with the evaporator and the blower fan. Yeah, there's something else I'm looking for. I don't know. I'm not an expert on that sort of stuff, but there, there's something uh, um, in the attic that's part the big part of the mechanism for an HVAC system. May I request some Johnny Cash bumper music on from Jeff in Forest County? Rhino was playing some fine tunes this morning. There's still great music. It's just not on the radio. To, yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm not saying there's not. I'm just saying that, you know, back then, if you looked at the young generation in the 60s, the music what really was more about, about love and loving one another and getting along and all that sort of stuff. And just more happy and, and soft, docile. And now it just doesn't seem like that. That's all I'm saying. Plenum. Plenum. Uh, plenum is a type of cabling. It's um, usually, usually used as a sheath on twisted pair cabling for Ethernet, for example. Ethernet cable. Anyhow, we got to get to the president. Uh, he, he went to the nation on Friday to discuss his enormous progress on the economy. Here we go. And let's get specific. They want to abolish the 15%. 15%, what a terrible thing to ask a corporation to pay. 15% tax that I insisted that those 55 corporations who made $40 billion and didn't pay a red cent, they now, my God, they got to pay 15%. If Republicans get their way, the deficit is going to soar. The tax burden is going to fall on the middle class. And Republicans are working really hard. This is this what kind of I have to admit. Every once in a while, they surprise me. <laughs> they have three, not one, not two, three plans to cut Social Security benefits. Three plans. And they're not going to stop there. They're going to do big farmers bidding to repeal my plan to allow Medicare to negotiate prescription drugs prices. And we pay the highest in the world. And in doing so, it's going to raise drug prices. 
And they're going to raise big pharma's profits. They're doing fine, big pharma. They're not hurting at all. And they're going to raise your health insurance premiums. It's mega, mega trickle-down. Mega, mega trickle-down. The kind of policies that have failed the country before and will fail it again. And it'll mean more wealth to the very wealthy, higher inflation for the middle class. That's the choice we're facing. That's why I think that we're going to do just fine. Mega, mega trickle down. <laughs> mega, mega. Well, okay, where do I start here? This 15%. <sighs> Let's start, I think, Rhino, with just reminding folks of the Ten Commandments. Number nine, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. This guy violates the Ten Commandments, certainly number nine, the Ninth Commandment, regularly. He just did in that tape, in that sound. The 15%, he's not being forthcoming. He's not being honest. Now, let's be honest about it here. Does he understand this? Does he understand how this works? No. Now, on the surface, it sounds like the way he always discusses it, these corporations, they're just cheating. They're not paying their taxes. they got to pay 15%. That is not true. That is not what's happening here. And when we come back on the other side of this break, I know I've explained it before. I'll go through it briefly. Why these 50 corporations don't have a tax liability. There's a reason for it. This guy doesn't understand taxes, yet he's the president of the United States. And let's be further clear. Most of the people in the Congress don't. They make the dang laws. We're coming right back as Tom Petty bumps us out of this segment. Stay with us. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. All right, we are back on Super Talk Mississippi. Love is a burning thing, and it makes a fiery ring. Bound by wild desire. Welcome back, everyone, from the all hit request line. <laughs> we just ought to do get me and you and Perez and do like an AM jockey day, huh? Could be fun. <laughs> Go into the AM voice. <laughs> oh, gosh. That on the all hit request line, someone did ask earlier. To place of Johnny Cash and Rhino aims to please us with a ring of far by the great Johnny Cash. All right. Oh, by the way, I think it's condenser was the was the component that I was thinking about. I think it's a very expensive component. And there's a furnace as well, right? And that's all part of the system in the attic. 
uh, the compressor, of course, outside. So i got several folks here on the ceasefire text line that are more familiar with that stuff than I am. Appreciate them weighing in. So uh, let me go through this, this statement the president just made about the mega MAGA Republicans. We just want them to pay their 15%. So there are provisions in the tax code which Democrats supported. It's part of the part of the uh, the bill, the Recovery Act passed under Barack Obama, which allows immediate expensing of capital investment. Now, what does that mean? I'm a corporation, and I need to let's just take computers. I need to upgrade my IT systems, and I go spend a lot of money in a given year to do that what we call in the IT industry a forklift upgrade. Take all the other old stuff out, replace it with all the new stuff. Substantial investment in that, just as an example. And under present code, present tax law, the entire amount of that investment is deductible, expensed, for tax purposes in the year in which the investment was made, in which the transaction was consummated. You go buy a million dollars of new equipment, you get to expense all million dollars in that year for tax purposes. For financial statement book purposes, as it is referred to in the accounting world, you don't. You put that million dollars of assets on the books as an asset on the balance sheet, and you depreciate it. I think folks understand that concept. Over the useful life um, as specified by the uh, accounting regulations for whatever it is you bought. For example, if it says that uh, IT equipment you bought got a useful life of 10 years, which is honestly crazy, you expense that million dollars, $100,000 a year over 10 years. That reduces your tax liability in those 10 years. But for tax purposes, you take the whole million dollar expense off of your income to compute your taxable income, and you pay taxes on that figure. And that's why you have two sets of books, a tax set and and a uh, financial statement set. All that really does is pull forward that million dollars of expenses into the year of purchase. It doesn't eliminate the tax liability. It doesn't avoid it. It just defers it. So in year two, you don't have that million dollars. On your on your financial state to write off on your financial statements, it's another hundred thousand. What he's saying is, if your if for financial statement purposes, whatever your income is, we want you to pay fifteen percent of that. If, when you look at for tax purposes, you you apply your tax rate of twenty one percent, which is the current corporate tax rate, on your tax income, if that comes out to be less than 15% of uh, your financial statement income, you're going to pay the greater. That's that's kind of the smoke and mirrors. And you see how convoluted it gets? I mean, you really kind of need to have a pretty good understanding of accounting fundamentals and, and taxation and tax policy. But what he make, does he not make it sound like they're just getting away with bloody murder? They're not paying any income taxes. They're cheating. They're stealing from you. Well, that's just not true. He won't get into the mechanics, just as I did, of why that is the case. The other thing is that, under our present tax code, 
corporations that produce losses are able to write those off against future profits. In some cases, they can actually carry them backwards against prior profits and reconcile their prior year tax returns. Amazon is a great example of that. For years, made no money. So now they're still applying those losses to their profit to reduce their tax liability. And what he's saying is, hey, if that comes out once you apply the 21% tax rate to less than 15% without writing off those losses, sorry, you don't get the benefit of those losses. He won't get into that. So how might that affect the economy? How about those people that sell that equipment to these big corporations that take advantage of the write-off in their current year? How will it affect their businesses? Because it's no longer attractive for them to do so. He won't get into the weeds on that. And I'm not saying that's necessarily a smart thing to do politically, but you also can't project and lie about it and try to cover it up and veil it with some other narrative that says, all these corporations just aren't paying their fair share. And to do what? Send it to the government for what? Go out the door so that it can be defrauded through these goofy programs? Shawaski Young coming up next. And now... The talk that keeps Mississippi talking. That's what I like to listen to. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Here on Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. Hour two of Middays, live from the Element Wealth Studios. Go to myelementwealth.com or call 601-957-6006 to let Element Wealth help you find your balance between income, growth, and guarantees. Joining us now, Shawaski Young, candidate for Mississippi's 3rd Congressional District. Shawaski, thanks for coming in today. Thanks so very much for having me. Great to be here again. Yes, sir. So we're getting close. Two weeks away is Election Day across these United States. You, of course, are a candidate for the United States House of Representatives, representing Mississippi's 3rd Congressional District. Yep. You're taking on incumbent uh, Republican Michael Guest in the 3rd Congressional District. Give us an update on the campaign. Well, again, thank you so very much for having me back here on the Midday Show. It's always a great opportunity to be here. Yes, sir. Uh, We are doing quite well. Uh, We have been working really hard going across the 3rd Congressional District from Otibahaw County all the way down to the southern counties as well, like Simpson and Smith, uh, Jeff Davis, uh, Clark County. We're working really hard to uh, get our message out, talk to the voters about what's most important to them, and that is jobs, 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 and uh, the economy, inflation, uh, and making sure that we're protecting folks' Social Security. Uh, so we're doing multiple events uh, every day across the 3rd Congressional District, uh, and you know I'm really excited about this race. We have 14 days left, uh, and I think we're going to be um, in a position to surprise a lot of folks on election night on November the 8th. Okay. So that's interesting. You're saying that the, the number one issue you're hearing uh, from uh, potential voters mm-hmm. is jobs. Is that right? Well, look, uh, look bringing high-paying jobs to Mississippi is a big deal right now. Uh, when I'm talking to folks um, on a daily basis in rural areas, mm-hmm. look, they want to be able to see high-paying jobs here in Mississippi. They want to be able to see big business coming to our particular state. Uh, and as, uh, you know, my hope is to be your future congressman. Mm-hmm. Uh, that job for me is making sure that we are creating the business environment 
uh, to bring those jobs here to Mississippi. That means working directly with the private sector, working directly with our state government uh, and our local uh, elected officials uh, so we can create the environment for folks to want to have interest in bringing those big jobs to Mississippi. Uh, And the folks here in Mississippi tell me that's what they want to see. Okay. Yeah. How do you see that materializing from a federal policy perspective? Right. What do you have in mind to create that uh, more conducive environment to attract businesses that uh, would be looking for higher paying jobs? Yeah, well, we have to create the tax breaks for them, number one. We have to create the economic environment for them to be uh, successful in their bottom line profit margins so we can make sure that we're providing those particular jobs they can bring to our state uh, to the folks right here in Mississippi. We have to be able to work uh, with our local uh, officials as well as with our state government. That means working with folks in the state house uh, who are in those particular areas of interest like in Philadelphia, Mississippi, uh, down uh, in Jeff Davis County, uh, also right outside of Jackson and Rankin County. Uh, look, there's a lot of folks that want to be able to see big business come into our state. And mm-hmm. I think that working with uh, Republicans and working with independents uh, and also uh, Democrats, of course, as well, uh, we can get that done. Uh, my entire career uh, has been working with people uh, that are interested in helping others help others. And I think that with my last role, um, working directly with individuals and uh, corporations and foundations, people who uh, are in the uh, C-level, uh, suite level in, in companies like Facebook, Google, Amazon, um, and other oracles and things of that nature, mm-hmm. uh, they want to be able to bring those jobs here to the South, but they want to be able to see the business environment as well. And I think our policies, not just economically, but socially, have a lot to do with that as well. Okay. So, interesting that, that you uh, you make a reference to tax breaks. Tax, yes. uh, okay. For, so, the President, of course, and the Democrat Party in general, uh, are really pitching the idea of increasing taxes. They they want to increase corporate taxes. They just passed the the Inflation Reduction Act, which increases corporate taxes. We were just talking about that in the last segment. So, mm-hmm. is it fair to say, uh, Shawaski, that you depart a bit from the president and the Democrats currently in Congress in that uh, so, area? So, so I'm for Mississippi. Okay, and I am for economic prosperity. And what we are seeing right now uh, is an opportunity uh, for corporate America to be able to invest more in local communities around the country uh, and also in places like Mississippi. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, when you talk to some of those folks who are leaders in those particular companies, they have mission statements that, that reflect their values. Uh, and they also uh, have those particular mission statements that actually uh, want to see diversity in the workforce as well. Uh, well, we have to create an environment for that. And that means basically that sometimes uh, that means that they're going to have to pay a little bit more to support the economy. And also. And also, when those corporations actually pay a little bit more in taxes, that gives us a tax revenue that we can actually turn around and invest in small businesses. On so the how local how would you do that? So you would take taxes, you would take revenue that is paid in the form of taxes by larger corporations, and you would make that those funds available to small businesses in some sort of grant programs or something? Absolutely. 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 So the mom-and-pop businesses of our communities, the folks who are out there selling lawnmowers, the folks who are out there uh, selling cakes and pies and cookies and things of that nature, or even folks uh, who are providing whatever services that our community needs, whether that's fertilizer or uh, whether that's uh, something else for the community that's going to support our community here in Mississippi from an agricultural standpoint, uh, also from a uh, buying standpoint of goods and services that they actually need. These particular corporations are making billions of dollars on a year, right. oftentimes sometimes paying as low as zero in their taxes. Right. Most of them actually don't mind paying a little bit more. You've talked to them about that? They I have, said, please tax me more? Not the entire corporation, of course right. not. But those people within those corporations that I know very well feel that way. Okay. So why don't they just 
pay more. I mean, there's nothing that prevents them from well, doing look, that. They don't have to be compelled by law to do that. No, 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 no. no. Just send more money to the government. So you can send it to small <laughs> businesses, right? I wish it was that simple. Or just go write checks to small businesses. Seriously, I wish it was just, that simple. Just stand up and, hey, have a big day. Small businesses come here, we're writing checks. Look, oftentimes these same particular corporations actually do invest in uh, nonprofits and things of that nature to actually help low-income families across right, our like country. Right, like Black Lives Matter. Well, we're not going to go there because, okay. you know, that I, I, I don't think that that's something that, you know, uh, but they turned do, out though, pretty right? well. Well, you know, when I say... I call it woke insurance. You call it woke insurance. Yeah. I have not heard that term before. Yeah. Go ahead. Well, well, look, I'm talking about how do we actually make sure that low-income families have an equal shot at economic prosperity in our state. Do you feel uh, like they don't now? I feel like there's a lack of information about how we can actually go about doing that. Uh, okay. Oftentimes, people don't know where to go find information. Okay. That I, was, I, I would agree with that. That's well, because I think we've created such a monstrosity and a, and a complexity of government programs Mm-hmm. that there are a lot of people that just aren't aware of everything that's available to them from the government. Look, I couldn't agree with you more. Yeah. Look, one of the reasons why I got into politics, when I was working at the Secretary of State's office uh, here in Mississippi, I started out as an intern in the uh, tax, uh, well, in the Public Lands Division, okay. working with tax-forfeited property. Okay. Uh, a lot of folks who are in real estate or who want to go out there and buy a home for, for low and invest it in and uh, renovate it, they don't even know that there's an actual list at the Secretary of State's office that provides you with tax-forfeited property that you can pretty much get for a relatively low price. True. Uh, information that can help people help themselves. Okay. Yeah. All right. So you would you would see yourself working with the Secretary of State to maybe use federal money to promote that information? I, or? I am of the view of helping others help themselves. That means that I'm not just working with Democrats. That means that I'm working with Republicans okay. as well, too. Absolutely. All right. All right so you, you said something else that uh, caught my attention is that some of these companies are, are not investing in Mississippi because of uh, the social climate and sure. social policy issues. Sure. You want to talk about that? we got about three minutes left. Absolutely. Yeah. Look, I've, I've been fortunate enough uh, with my education from East Central Community College and Jackson State University to go on and work in places across the United States, from Florida to New York to Virginia to D.C. to California. Okay. And in those particular environments, people say things about Mississippi that are not relatively true relative to our particular state and our environment. And I believe that that's because there are some particular conversations out there that do not align with the national uh perspective, so okay. to speak. Okay. And uh, they're apprehensive about folks in Mississippi. Uh, and I want to be able to bring Mississippi into the forefront in American society uh, where we're able to compete with other states where those big businesses want to come here, help provide jobs for our folks here in Mississippi, and also make sure that people have an equal shot at economic prosperity as a whole. Is abortion one of those issues? I think well, it obviously, is. Obviously, well, over two, well, right at about two-thirds of the American public do not agree with the fact that Roe v. Wade was overturned. Right. And in a recent survey here in Mississippi, about almost 53% of Mississippians don't agree with this particular position. And this is something that I've talked with uh, suburban white women uh, across the state about. This is something I've talked with women about on the campaign trail since it pretty much started. Uh, this has been a national conversation, and people don't like the fact that it was actually overturned. And most folks will tell you, they don't believe that men should be telling women what to do with their own bodies, and we all as Americans have a right to make our own choices and not be treated like second class So do you not agree with just the concept that it's a decision that should be left to the states, which is really what overturning Roe v. Wade do? Some states are rushing, well, frankly, to make abortion more accessible, even paying for people to come to their state for abortion. Other states are restricting it more. Well, you know, I believe that uh, those decisions between uh, on the abortion matter. Those decisions should be made between a woman and her doctor privately. And okay. the state shouldn't uh, have a hand in that. Okay. 
Yeah. All right. So I think I think keeping state government, less government out of these particular issues is something that might align with a lot of conservatives in Mississippi as well, too. I see. I got you. All right. Uh, we got about 30 seconds. Anything else you want to say? Look, I just want to uh, thank everybody for the support for this campaign. Uh, pay attention to the issues that are at play right here. We have an opportunity to move Mississippi forward. Please go to ShawaskiYoung.com. Check us out. Go to Shawaski Young for Congress on Facebook, at Shawaski Young on Twitter, and also on Instagram. Uh, and I look forward to seeing you in your local seat. I'm sure you are seeing signs around everywhere. Good luck, Shawaski. Thanks for Thank coming Thank you on. so very Appreciate much. Appreciate it. Middays, we'll step aside for a break right here. We're in the Element Well Studios. Talk that keeps Mississippi talking. Now, now, on to the real part. On Super Talk Mississippi. Version of it. I don't know where you found that one. <laughs> I see it says the full version. It's in a little different count. Speed. That would be Scott McKenzie, though. I asked Rhino to play that one since we were <laughs> talking a bit about the music of the 60s. And that would be the anthem from the Summer of Love 1967, as it was called. Scott McKenzie. Go look at that video and see that Nehru smock he's got on with all the flowers. Oh, my gosh. But it's but that's at least a fun song. I mean, there's nothing hostile or harsh or antagonistic or confrontational in it, right? Not like the protesters on The View yesterday when Ted Cruz was there, and they heckled and shouted down the senator. To the point where even Whoopi Goldberg was embarrassed. Said, let us do our job. And they started calling him out on climate change. Then they started cursing where you could hear it over the air and they had to go to commercial. Uh, and he made, it. I thought, a, a fairly smart retort. He said, gosh, I'm glad there's not a Picasso around here. Because the climate change wackos have been destroying, or attempting to at least, destroy art. I just saw on the television here in the studio a couple of them slapping pies in the faces of wax statues of uh, Prince Charles. (laughs) 
what the heck does that do? What'd you tell me? They're gluing themselves to the floor or something? Oh yeah, there's uh, there's the attacks on the the classic art of Monet that they threw mashed potatoes on and then glued themselves to the wall, and then there was a a group of protesters. I want to say it was in Germany, maybe. It was at some car show or event where they they glued themselves to the floor around a a nice car and then got upset when the organizers turned off the lights and the heat and wouldn't give them a bowl to use the bathroom in. <laughs> oh gosh. I just don't get it. I don't know what the heck they think they're they're doing there. What are they achieving by gluing themselves to the floor? They're getting attention. That's exactly what it is. Sick. Oh gosh. Uh, oh, somebody has told me by the way the condenser is also outside with a compressor, so my apologies for that. It's the air handler in the furnace. We have somebody on the ceasefire text line that is uh, an HVAC tech, so appreciate that correction. Uh, not my area, but I know we have smart people out there that are, and I appreciate them informing us. Gerard is a man asking the tough questions. I don't really feel like I ask tough questions to Mr. Young, Shawaski Young. I you know, I asked him to give us an update on the campaign, and one of the first things he said was uh, he talked about in his travels throughout the district, the theme he's hearing the most is jobs. And, and that I will say that that is a little perplexing because all I hear from employers is we can't find anybody to work. So there's a, there's a disconnect, obviously, in the jobs market. He did kind of clarify that by saying, well, I'm talking about good-paying jobs. Now, I have for years talked about the need to boost the knowledge worker community in our state. There's no question about that. We send them all to college. I know we've discussed this countless times. We send them all to college. That's what our, our secondary education and primary education prepares, for the most part, students for, going off to college. We send them, and then they leave, for the most part. Auditor Shad White has brought this up and discussed it and actually quantified it. What is it costing us from an economic perspective and from a quality of life perspective? He makes the point that we raise our kids, we send them off to college, and then they leave, and, and, and you have this physical separation between your offspring and, and then their ultimate offspring, his grandparents and so forth. He makes a great point. Um, but nonetheless, it's because he can't find those knowledge worker jobs. There are not enough of them. I agree. We need more corporate headquarters. No question about it. We need entrepreneurs to, to create them and form their businesses here that eventually uh, develop into Corporate headquarters that have large staffs, we need that. And we need big corporations that uh, are outfitted and staffed with knowledge workers to establish a presence here of some sort. That's the way we're going to retain the people that we're paying a lot to educate. No doubt about it. So I'm, I'm with him on that. I'm, I'm a little surprised to find that inflation and its, uh, its impact on American households and their finances didn't come up because poll after poll shows top issue, number one issue. 
I think we played Nancy Pelosi yesterday saying, we got to change the narrative because, you know, inflation is high. We did this in the last segment. I went off on a rant. Inflation is high in all these other countries, too. Nobody cares, toots. That, that is not, we do not compare ourselves to other countries. That is not the standard. That, that would be like Rhino having a curve in a classroom, right? We all, we all scored under 50 but the person that got the 50 got an A because we curved the grades. We, we just diluted the standard. It's kind of like that. We're just going to compare ourselves to the inflation in Venezuela and take a victory lap. Not as bad as it is in Venezuela. That's what we aspire to? Just to be as good or slightly better than all the other nations in the world? I think not. I think there wouldn't be an America. We would not be the freest, most prosperous nation on the planet. So I take exception to that with uh, Speaker Pelosi. But, uh, but so I'm a little surprised to find out that didn't come up within the district. I, I would be surprised to find that there are folks out there that can't find jobs when you consider just how many employers are looking for workers. I went yesterday to have something repaired, I'm not going to name the business, and learned that October 31st, last day, in business. And it concerned me somewhat because I have something that they're the only people around the area can repair and work on and service. And I asked the, the owner, can't find anybody to work. I'm getting a little older, I need help, can't find anybody to work. Shutting down. You see that all over the place. It's the reason the Fed continues with their aggressive rate hiking, because what they're looking for literally is the unemployment rate to tick up. The theory being, if people are out of jobs, they don't have income, they can't spend as much, and that will uh, cause inflation to abate. They're literally looking to destroy jobs, and they haven't gotten it done thus far. They keep raising rates. But yet the, the job market continues to surprise and say, yeah, unemployment's still low, and the uh, number of jobs available still high, and the Fed says, well, shoot, we got to raise them some more. So that's what's going on there, but clearly inflation. Now, back to the president. <laughs> mega, mega Republican. <laughs> so the president says, you probably heard him. He says, the cost of health care, they'll make your premiums go up. Just so you'll know, what he's talking about is the provision in the Inflation Reduction Act that doesn't get a lot of attention, and that is the extension of the enhanced Obamacare subsidies through 2025. You knew this was going to happen. This was something that went into effect as part of the American Rescue Plan. And so what it does is, is it eliminates the so-called subsidy cliff, which means that even folks that make more than $400,000, which was the threshold in the original subsidy structure, even if you make more than that, you can still go to the, uh, to the exchanges and buy insurance. You may not qualify necessarily for the subsidies, but you're still permitted to go buy insurance in the exchanges. And then the other thing is, uh, the enhancements to the subsidies, basically the, the ranges, the thresholds, slide upward uh, such that the percentage of income you have to pay 
for coverage is is just lower. So your premiums are lower. We'll, we'll get into that a little bit. But so, yeah, it is true. They extended that for three years. But it doesn't affect you unless you're getting your coverage in the exchanges, which is about 16 million people who, by the way, buy coverage in the individual market and don't receive it from their employer. That's 170 million people. They don't get any break here. More lies. We're coming right back. Bring it on. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. It is on. On Super Talk Mississippi. This 60s protest song day. <laughs> no, I just figured I would I would show about the uh, the most aggressive you could get with the protest songs <laughs> at that point. Uh, that was one. What's going on is another one. Yeah, Marvin Gaye. But maybe one of the biggest, honestly, was Ohio about the Kent State shooting. Kind of tell the story in there. That's a good one as well. Appreciate that, Rhino. Mike from Olive Branch says, was that an interview or did he pay to advertise his candidacy? You were easy on him. Well, I'm not going to apologize for that. I, I don't know. I, I don't come in here thinking about being easy or hard. That's not the goal. goal is just to get information. So I, I can't imagine how the questions I asked would be perceived as advertising. I don't feel like that was the case at all. Uh, I asked him to give us an update on the campaign. He did, and he talked about his positions, and I just dug into those a little bit. Uh, so it's not about, I don't know what you want me to do, attack the guy here in the studio. It's just, that's not really appropriate, I don't think. I made it very clear. By the way, on his way out, I shared with him. I said, look, I appreciate you coming in. I don't think you and I agree on a whole lot, and that's fine. But... Um, you know, you look, you saddle up, you go run for office, it don't matter who you are. You take some gumption, take some thick skin. Now, were this to be a longer, more protracted sort of debate between him and me on the issues, been totally different. This wasn't. That's not the purpose of this. And by the way, Rhino, I believe in accordance with FCC rules, if I'm not mistaken. There, there, there's something that governs political candidates coming on the air here where uh, I think we have to at least offer equal time in the same races, right, if I'm not mistaken. So um, anyhow, and at first, by the way, he was going to phone in or be on vMix on our video, but uh, he elected to come in the studio. So I also caught something that Jim in the Delta pointed out, I caught this as well, he said he was for corporate tax breaks and then immediately after that he said they needed to pay more corporate tax. I hear you and I agree, I caught that as well, Jim, and, and I thought honestly about going down that uh, with some questions, discussing that further, but that would have consumed the whole interview. 
I'm afraid, because that gets complicated. But I agree, it's a bit of a conflict there. What he specifically said was, you know, these big corporations make a bunch of money. I, I, that is not how tax policy should be crafted. It's, <laughs> we've gotten to that point in this country where tax policy, which is designed to produce sufficient revenue to operate the government, the big question then becomes, as we've discussed so many times, what should the government be engaged in? What is the proper role of government? Whatever that proper role is, I believe that it is what was enumerated in our Constitution. And that we have kind of it has deviated from that, right? It's gone off on a thousand tangents where the government is funding all sorts of things it shouldn't be. It's not a constitutionally appropriate function of government. But when you look at funding that, we still don't raise enough money with trillion-dollar deficits every year. For as far as the eyes can see going forward, there's, there's no indication that's going to let up, no matter who's in charge, honestly. So it's, it's about what's the constitutionally appropriate role of government. He did make the point that, yeah, we need to tax corporations, and I asked why, and basically his answer was, so we, we can create programs to give money to small businesses. I completely disagree with that. Just because somebody makes a lot of money, that's not a reason, or co- whether it's a corporation or an individual, to tax them more. You make more, you can afford it. No, that's not how tax policy should work. Who's, who's the arbiter of who can afford it? What does that mean? Give me some numbers there. Nobody ever will, by the way. What should it be? They can't tell you. But now this president has made it clear. Should they retain control, which is highly unlikely, based on all indicators, yeah, they're going to raise corporate taxes. They're going to raise individual taxes. And I'm telling you, a fight is brewing as sure as I'm sitting here in 26 when the Trump, the the individual provisions of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act expire at the end of 25. Maybe it is 26. I may be getting that confused with the Inflation Reduction Act health care provisions. It's one of those years. Anyhow, shortly after that, when those expire, as we approach those, there's going to be a battle royale in the Congress. Now, here's the truth, folks. Revenues are up. Federal revenues under the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act are up. Here's something else most people don't realize. Corporations, for decades, the taxes corporations pay is really about 6 to 7% of total revenue collected. It's from individuals. So when Joe Biden talks about these 50 corporations that paid no tax liability, I did a little math on that. You're certainly welcome to go do it as well and let me know if I got the math wrong here. But it would amount to maybe, when you implemented this 15% minimum tax as he wants to, maybe $40 billion a year. That's not nothing. But when you got a five-plus trillion-dollar budget, No, that's not a lot. It's 1% of the total spending. Doesn't amount to a whole lot. But yet, he presents it like, oh yeah, economic bliss would break out with this 15% minimum tax. And then, of course, he talked about 
They're going to repeal this, which is going to make your health care premiums go up. No, it just means the subsidies would return to what they were before this bill was passed. The subsidies going back to the origins of Obamacare, which only affects those who go to the exchanges and buy coverage in the individual market, not the group market, which is where most people get their insurance from their employer. Once again, being duplicitous about that, not being honest. And by the way, I know you've talked about it, Rhino, all of our premiums went up in spite of Barack Obama saying, yeah, on average, they'll go down 2500 bucks. That didn't happen. More lies. If you like your doctor, you can keep him. More lies. And they knew it. So it wasn't just mistakes or what they thought. They knew then that would be the case. Enough study had been done on that. Here's some more sound we got for you from uh, Biden about the economy. Nothing that will create more chaos, more inflation, and more damage to the American economy than this. Think about it. Republicans are determined to hold the economy hostage, either given to their demands on Social Security and Medicare, which millions of Americans rely on and earned and paid for, or Republicans are going to crash the economy. They're going to crash the economy! So... The projection is strong with this one. Uh, it's unbelievable. So, I, I'll tell you, I read his remarks, and this is what he said. Listen to this, folks about the deficit. Now listen to me closely. This was Friday. Congressional Republicans love to call Democrats big spenders, and they always claim to be for less federal spending, but let's look at the facts. The federal deficit went up every single year in the Trump administration. Every single year he was president. It went up from the pandemic. It went up during the pandemic. It went up every single year on his watch. In fact, the three years before COVID hit, the deficit ballooned by another $400 billion. There are the facts. And one big reason for that is the Republicans voted for a $2 trillion tax cut, a Trump tax cut, which overwhelmingly benefited the wealthy and the biggest corporation, and they racked up the deficit significantly. Wrong, wrong, wrong. First, it's $1.5 trillion. Second, it's over 10 years. Third, revenues are up. It was projected, projected that revenues would decline. That's what the CBO said about the TCJA. But they didn't. They went up. We just set records in tax collections, you idiot. I get fired up because I can't stand the lies. On my watch, things have been different. The deficit has come down both years that I've been in office. Once again, while that is technically true, he's not being honest. He's not telling the whole story. During the stupid pandemic, The government went nuts and spent a ridiculous amount of money. That's why your gas is high. That's why your groceries are high. That's why your clothes are high. That's why you're incurring this economic pain because of reckless spending. It happened in the last year of Trump. Every Democrat and Republican supported it, except for six in the House, three Democrats and three Republicans. But then... Joe Biden comes into office and pours fuel on a fire by passing this stupid American rescue plan. $1.9 trillion without a single Republican vote, and it's taking victory laps on it. I believe that accounts for at least half of inflation. And then I'm going to go through the math on 
how silly it is for him to talk about cutting the deficit. Good grief. Stay with us. You know what that means. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. We'll do it live. On Super Talk Mississippi. We are back on Midday, Super Talk Mississippi. I guess uh, Paul must have been fired up this morning, too, because somebody on the ceasefire text line said, Paul, calm down before you have a stroke. They need MM. What's that? I'm not sure. Same person just told me to quit screaming. So I apologize for the screaming. Yeah, I, I told you I was going to get fired up. Get passionate. The lion, I just can't I can't deal with it. I can deal with debating the policy and the merits and the liabilities of policy. I just can't deal with a lion. Really can't. And I so I apologize for that. If it uh got on you. Uh it says, I know you get upset, but we must use our inside voice on the air. <laughs> oh gosh. Let's see. Jeff says, I'm a New York Giants fan, so I listen to a lot of WFAN sports radio, and even those guys in New York City can't say anything good about the current administration. They think it's a joke. Those guys aren't a bunch of Republicans. I think that's why you're likely to see... Oh, medical marijuana is what MM is. Okay. Uh, I think you're likely to see, perhaps, a switch at the, in the governor's mansion in New York. Man. That's what it's looking like. That is unbelievable, but it's mainly in New York. It's the crime, and even the Democrats are saying, this is enough. Kathy Hochul, who fell into that uh, position as governor. Crime, homelessness, trash. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, it's bad. And she, of course, is being challenged by uh, Congressman Lee Zeldin. They're facing off in a debate, I think, tonight again. So yeah, it's bad. And and it, right now the polls show it neck and neck. That's hard to believe. You know, the other thing that's fascinating is there's some congressional st- seats being contested that are real races in New York that were won rather handily by Biden that look like they may go red. So there's some folks that are projecting the Republicans may have as large as a 30 to 35 seat majority, which is up from a month ago when it was thought to be Eight to ten, maybe. You got lots of fascinating races going on. The 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 Senate race with old Patty Murphy, Murray in Washington State is a fascinating one. The governor's race in Arizona, the Senate race there as well. That would be a net pickup. Utah, uh, pardon me, Nevada, Nevada. That would also the Senate race there would be a net pickup. New Hampshire's in play. So Newt Gingrich thinks that Republicans could have a 55-seat position in the Senate. I don't know. It seems out there. But he's talked about a path to it. That means, essentially, you win Georgia, you win Pennsylvania, you win Wisconsin, you win Ohio, you win 
New Hampshire, which is a bit in play. You win Nevada, you win Arizona, and you win Washington, all of which are in play from a Senate side. So, all right, so it, I did look it up, the Trump tax cuts, the individual provisions, they do expire at the end of 25. So it will be uh, in the next presidential term. Re-election occurs, in, or election, I should say, occurs in 24. God, I pray we don't have re-election of the guy in there. Just this week, this is Joe Biden talking, it's hard to make this stuff up. Just this week, Republican leaders said if they were to get their way, they're going to extend the tax cuts, which are due to expire in a couple of years. Extend them all, the humanity. Meaning, if they let them expire, you're going to pay more taxes. He can't make that up, but he can fabricate every other part of his life for the last four decades. No doubt about it. Habitually. Has he lied? They'd allow the largest and most prosperous corporations in America to go back to paying zero in federal income tax, which 55 of them did in 2020. I just discussed that. He doesn't care to explain the mechanics behind that. They'll repeal the lower prescription drug cost. It will take effect next year. These major reductions in drug costs don't really kick in until next year. It's going to raise costs on millions of seniors, and the cost of federal government to the federal government will be billions of dollars. Put it all together, the Republican plan would add about $3 trillion to the deficit. That's their plan. No. So back to this deficit narrative that he's pushing, taking victory laps, because the deficit this year is only going to be about $1.4 trillion. Well, it is true it's down. But that's because this year didn't include an American rescue plan at $1.9 trillion. It's kind of like filling a ditch up, like you know, bringing in a bunch of dirt and pushing it into a ditch, and then digging it out and bragging about it. Yet you paid to bring the dirt in to fill up the ditch. That's what it is. So the only way to have a meaningful conversation about all this deficit stuff is to take all the COVID stuff crap and all that legislation and all that spending out of the equation. As long as you include that, you're not having a meaningful apples-to-apples comparison. You're just not. Yeah, I spent $1.9 trillion in in 21, but I didn't in 22, and look what that did for the deficit. I mean, that literally is what he's saying. Unbelievable. We got Forrest Thigpen in the studios after the news break. Stay with us. Welcome to the show that challenges you to think deeply deeply. and look beyond political posturing. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. Hour three of Middays, live from the Element Well Studios. we got tickets to give away, too, before we get out of here today. The Gallo Show will be at the Mississippi Coliseum in Jackson on Thursday for the annual Mississippi Economic Council Hobnob. This is the biggest gathering for movers, shakers, and playmakers from across the state. It's the number one gathering place for networking and statewide political and business leaders. For more info about this year's Hobnob or to register, go to MEC.MS. Joining us now in the Element Well Studios, 
Forrest Thigpen, Senior Advisor with Empower Mississippi. Good to see you, Forrest. Good to see you, Gerard. All right, so wanted to start out by talking about an article that uh, you published a few days ago about uh, criminal justice reform. And, and my key takeaway from the article, Forrest, was that you were trying to maybe debunk some of the misconceptions yeah. right. about uh, criminal justice reform, and in particular uh, prison reform, in terms of its impact on crime itself. Yeah. Tell us about that. Well, there's no question that crime has been on the increase in the last couple of years, uh, and we recognize that, think it's horrible, uh, and think that there are, and know that there are some people who need to be in prison. Uh, but I just wanted to correct some of the misconceptions that have, have been floating around, especially in light of the parole board's action recently on uh, a, a specific decision that they made that I know you've talked about, yep. and a lot of other people have appropriately. Um, but the reforms that were passed in Mississippi, the big ones were in 2014 and 2021. The spike in crime started in 2020, uh, so it doesn't correspond. It has continued, but it doesn't correspond to either of those reforms. And the purpose of those reforms was to recognize that uh, that the people there are a lot of people in prison who don't really need to be in prison, and basically we're spending a lot of money. Uh, housing people and feeding them and uh, keeping them from being productive citizens, if they would be. And an indication of that is last year, 2021, uh, the admissions to our prisons in Mississippi, uh, it was uh, 83% or 73%, I think, of the admissions were for drug offenses or nonviolent crimes. And so if we're spending our time and our resources on uh, nonviolent crimes and drug crimes, and and actually a majority of those drug crimes were for mere possession of drugs, if we're spending all of our time, prosecutorial time, police time, uh, prison space, the cost that goes with all of that, if that's where we're spending our time, then we're not spending our time focusing on the violent crime that can actually that actually harms people okay uh, do we have any statistics on that like yeah. of the number incarcerated in Mississippi how many are in for these for an extended period of time uh, for sure that uh, really didn't uh, harm anyone didn't commit a violent crime and uh, d- did not I guess take anybody's stuff is one easy way, simple way to put it. Yeah. Well, I mean, taking Just stuff is, is a – yeah, taking stuff is a property crime. Right. And actually that has been on the decline for 20 hmm. years. Okay. And continued to decline even over the last few years as violent crime has increased. Okay. Which is a fascinating thing. That is thing. interesting, yeah. yeah. Um, but, yes, there are statistics uh, on that and um, – you mentioned that I'm senior advisor, and that's because I'm old. And at this particular <laughs> moment, I'm not remembering the exact statistic that it is, but it is uh, a significant portion of our prison population is uh, drug or nonviolent crimes. And as I said, last year, uh, the vast majority of admissions were for drug or nonviolent crimes. Hmm. 
talking about drug possession or or so, sale of drugs, distribution uh, of drugs. Uh, drugs of all uh, all sorts, but a majority of those drug uh, convictions of people who went to prison for drug offenses. Mm-hmm. Uh, more than half of those uh, were just for possession. Interesting. So they get locked up. We pay for that. They just were possessing an illegal drug. Right. That was the crime they committed. Yeah. Cost money. So what uh, what do the folks that run the Department of Corrections, what do they say about it? Of course, you got law enforcement as well. I know they have very strong feelings about this. That that usually where there's some issues, right? That's right. And, and see, one of the problems in all of this is that we tend to live, especially in the age of social media, we tend to live in an all-or-nothing mentality. Yeah, I agree. Either you're all good or you're all bad. Either you should go away forever or um, or you shouldn't go at all. Yeah. You know, it's it's all your fault or it's none of your fault. Yeah. <clears throat> and so we slide into those ruts where we then just take on whatever the natural thing is. If we think that people ought to go to prison forever, then we fall into that tough-on-crime uh, mode, which is exactly where I was. I would still say I, I still am. Uh, in the 90s, I was one of the proponents of the three strikes and you're out hmm. and uh, other harsh penalties because uh, the – the research showed then, and still does now, this is the key, it still does now show that there are people, a relatively few number of people, uh, who should be locked up, and some of those should be locked up for life. Okay. Uh, because a vast majority of the crimes are committed by a relatively few uh, number of people, a relatively small number of people. Yeah. And so if you focus, this is, this is going to be one of our recommendations in a report we'll have coming out soon. <clears throat> if you focus on, if you do what's called focused deterrence, and that's when you, when you go into neighborhoods where there is a lot of crime, uh, and you, and the police are working, police, first of all, need to be adequately funded, and we need to make sure that those funds go to hiring and training competent officers and not to equip a bunch of equipment that they, that looks fancy, but they don't necessarily need. So that's the first thing, is equip the police uh, with the personnel and the training that they need. And then part of that w- is to go into neighborhoods, find out who the acts from the neighbors, because they know yeah. who the criminals are, and then go to those criminals. This has worked in a number of cities, conservative and liberal-led, mm-hmm. uh, and say, if you continue, then we will arrest you quickly. And that's what, apparently, is what criminals respond to more than a length of a sentence or a fear of being in prison for a long time. The greater deterrent is the swift and certain, is to know that they will be arrested and they will it will happen quickly. It won't be dragged out over years. I got you. So I got a comment here on the ceasefire text line. Bradford in Blue Springs says – uh, sometimes they're arrested for possessing drugs, but originally they were arrested for aggravated assault, but that charge was dropped due to a plea bargain, and that kind of causes a 
yeah that, that is true situation. yeah and we don't know how many of those that are for possession uh were pled from a stronger whether it's even a stronger drug charge yeah. or something like that that does happen uh and so we don't know exactly how often that happens okay but that that's a valid point yeah uh to consider but uh again it's the with 70 plus percent of the people going into prison last year going in for drug or nonviolent, and of those drug crimes half were were just for possession then chances are uh that's that's a pretty strong st- not chances are that is a pretty strong statement of where we're focusing our attention have you talked to uh, any folks in corrections about this how they feel about this? yeah uh, yeah and of course they have to deal with what is sent to them sure and a lot of this uh, happens uh, in the courts in fact I'll say this now the the George uh, the the George mr. Bell uh, yeah. who um, who was murdered by another guy named Bell? Yep. Um, that the for the parole board to parole that man, the my, the guy who committed murder, uh, has zero to do with the law. That was all done by court decisions. So that's another misnomer about the prison reforms that okay. we worked on, because those prison reforms kept in place what is in the law. That murderers are not eligible for parole. Yeah, I, that agree. That that is a popular misconception, though. Right, and that really has nothing to do with this particular case. That's right. Because the courts have decided that a person with mental illness, uh, if they're rehabilitated, then they're essentially to be treated as if they never committed the crime. Gotcha. Which is wrong. Yeah, we got a break right here. Let's come back. We can talk about some of the test scores that are in nationwide with respect to the impact on our our students during the pandemic who most of which were home and not in school where they should be and uh, how that looks we got uh, Forrest Dickpen senior advisor with Empower Mississippi in the Element Well Studios Is everybody ready? I'm ready. Ready here. Middays with Gerard Gibbons. On Super Talk Mississippi. See, that was about 1973. You weren't even around then, were you? Not even close. <laughs> Back in the Element Well Studios, that'd be Redbone. Oh, yeah. Pumping us into this segment. I think I saw him on uh, American Bandstand perform live, actually, <laughs> about 1973, 74. Anyhow, Forrest Stickpin with Empower Mississippi is our guest. All right. Uh, you had another point you told me you wanted to make about uh, the prison reform efforts. Yeah, a couple of things. Uh, one is uh, I remember hearing a while back um, the way to think about this is uh, we need to distinguish between who we're mad at and who we're afraid of. Okay. So if we're afraid of people because they can harm people, then those are the people that need to be in prison. 
if we're just mad at them because they did something, whether it's drug crimes or something else, but and didn't hurt anybody, if we're just mad at them, then there's a different way to treat them. And even within that, there, if anybody who has uh, more than one child knows that there are different things that uh, work to affect uh, change, effect change in people's lives. Um, I had uh, one friend who. Um, who in college um, stole something, and they were just arrested. That's all it took for them for the rest of their lives. Yeah. Uh, but if they had been convicted and thrown in prison, then that would have just that would have been detrimental not only to their life but to now their families' lives. And so, uh, distinguishing between those is very hard. Um, but it's, again, it goes back to it's not an all or nothing thing. And another aspect of this, the other point that I want to make, is that the uh, people who get out of prison and commit another crime, so the recidivism rate, the, those who recidivate, uh, it's it, in the first three years in Mississippi, it's about a third of the people who get out uh, mm-hmm. commit another crime. So that means two-thirds don't. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of those one-third that get out – the majority of those commit those crimes within the first six months. Six months, wow. And so the the story there, and this has been proved by research uh, that has been done all over the country, is that uh, people, when they get out of prison and they're given $25 or $50 and a bus ticket, uh, and that's it, then they just go back to what they knew. They go back to where they were and the situation they came from and the people that they knew. Uh, and so it's very important uh, to prepare them for release, to make sure that while they have been in prison, and this new law that passed last year requires them to have what's called a case plan from the time they enter prison till the time of their parole eligibility, hmm. which, again, this law didn't even guarantee parole. It just allowed it, – it created eligibility for some – but from the time they come in to the time they're eligible for parole, they have this case plan that includes taking different classes, learning a trade, learning some life skills, anger management, uh, drug treatment, which actually works better after they get out. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that first, that last six months they're in prison and the first six months they're out of prison is something that our Department of Corrections is now starting to focus on. Okay. Uh, so that the people who get out have something different to do than what they came from. And that has been shown to have a dramatic impact, impact on the crime rate. So uh, on the ceasefire tax line, somebody wants to hear your thoughts on property crimes, such as a habitual thief. Should they be incarcerated? Property crime. Yeah. Uh, there are so many different property crimes in so many different circumstances uh, that, like in the case of the person that I mentioned that was in college and stole something, that's different from somebody who uh, who has done it multiple times. Um, and so in some cases, yes, they should be in prison yeah. if they have um, uh, not just habitual, but certainly if they have uh, have the – um, if, if they continue to do that, then, yes, they should be in prison. They shouldn't be in prison for life. That, again, longer sentences doesn't necessarily 
uh, create a deterrent. Um, but if people show that they are not willing to change, then we have to do something different. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the goal ultimately should be to try to figure out a way to, for them to re-enter society and be productive and, and re-acclimate. I think there are some situations, though, honestly, it's just not possible. Yeah, um, that's right. You know, I, I, I've read lots of reports from the clinical community that says that um, uh, pedophilia and just child abuse like that, uh, sexual child abuse, can't be cured. Yeah. Just a yeah. short circuit in the brain. Yep. That's all right, and and that's what I mean is is if there are people who have the have a short circuit in their brain for whatever it is, whether it's a sexual crime or whether it's um, kleptomania or anything else, then uh, you know they need to be treated differently. Now that's another aspect also that has been shown to uh, to actually reduce crime is when uh, and that overwhelms our prison system and our jails the the local jails and our law enforcement officers is that so many of the people they encounter uh are doing what they're doing because of a mental illness yeah and that can so easily slide into so they're they're not account they shouldn't be accountable for that or um uh, they they shouldn't be punished for that and then on the other side it's well it doesn't matter what their situation is they need to be thrown away in prison, uh, and so there are other ways to deal with that, and that Mississippi has just started to do recently. Yeah, just like what they did with uh, drug courts, they're starting to treat mental illness differently. And really, the best way to do that is to have uh, in place um, where, when officers arrest somebody, they can make at least an initial evaluation. They're not equipped to deal with these yeah. illnesses but to have somebody at least on the police staff who can make an initial uh judgment about almost like triage of uh where they need to go and what type of um charge should be made yeah or I mean, if not it, then if they can be treated uh for a mental illness then that will reduce crime if they can be treated yeah i i know Psychiatrists maintain they can just look in someone's eyes and tell them tell whether or not they're a, a risk, you know, yeah. of violence. And so uh, officers can be trained to some degree of that, and they can have, uh, especially in the force that has enough people, could be have somebody trained that can go a little deeper. But that's so much of what our law enforcement deal with every day, yeah. and it discourages them uh, that they can't help more. But it also you know they have the responsibility to keep people safe. Yeah, let's talk about the test scores. Uh, the uh, the country didn't really get good news here. No, the uh, the pandemic really caused historic setbacks. Uh, certainly in in uh, math, in particular, largest decrease ever. Reading uh, down to uh, like early nineties level. Yeah, reading scores drop, and uh, this is largely thought to be because. Kids were home and yeah. in, in, uh, involved in remote learning, which maybe works for some, but overall seems like it doesn't produce as, as positive and, and uh, good outcomes as in-person learning. Yeah, well, and that's a very key point is that for some it works and for some it doesn't. And so parents need to have the option on what works best for their children. Sure. 
but in terms of the public school scores, which is what this latest report, the National Assessment of Educational Progress. Public schools only, we should clarify. Because right. parochial schools did fantastic. They, yes. they Well, they were, it was mixed, too. But the ones that uh, stayed open, including right. the public schools that right. stayed open, it appears that they did better. We've got an expert that's looking at the specifics on this, but he said from his initial read, it looks like rural areas did better than urban areas, uh, and states that opened back up more quickly uh, did better than states that stayed closed for a long okay. time. So what do you think about all this? I mean, what, is, how, what does this instruct from a policy perspective? Well, it's hard to tell. And that, that's one of the things about this that is interesting is that, as you saw, that the, the scores, including in Mississippi, went down some, not as bad as the rest of the country. Yeah. Um, but you have um, uh, the grades, the, the accountability grades that the State Department of Education gave out uh, a, few day, a few weeks ago that actually showed a lot of improvement. Both of these are anomalies. I wondered that as well. Yeah. They are, these are anomalies because of COVID. And so you shouldn't make long-term policy decisions based on what is, appears, certainly appears to be an anomaly. And that when things settle back down, they will have a, be, a more accurate view of where we really are. Somewhat tantamount, tantamount to my analysis of the deficit. you got the COVID aspect of that and the non-COVID aspect. Right. We, to have a meaningful discussion, we got to get on the level playing field yep. on that. Yeah. Right. Forrest Thickpen, Senior Policy Advisor of Power Mississippi. He's been our guest on Midday. Thanks for coming on, Forrest. Always Thank good to you. see you. Good to see you. We'll take a break right here. Coming right back in the Element Well Studios. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. All right, we are back on Super Talk Mississippi. segment of Midday Super Top Mississippi. Hang in there. We're going to give away some tickets here in a little while. Prison time is easier when they have everything they want. Should inmates have luxuries like cell phones and TVs in their cells, says Dan in Tate County. Gary in the Berg says, excellent interview with a Democrat candidate. You did it perfectly. He was trying to come off as a conservative Democrat till you asked if Biden and the Democrats agree with his approach. He exposed himself on corporate taxes, and your response on money going to BLM brought him out as a real Democrat. Plus, the abortion issue was very informative. Well done. Keep getting fired up as conservatives are way too docile and comfortable in red states. Well, you know, I, I did ask the BLM question, and I, and I hesitated, but the fact is, I, it is what I call woke insurance. I mean, you go look at the list of corporations that, in the wake of the George Floyd incident, uh, fallen all over themselves to give money to this fraudulent, phony, Marxist organization where the executives involved in BLM enrich themselves ridiculously. I mean, that's been totally exposed. 
But if you say anything, they'll attack you, castigate you, do their best to ostracize you. And, and these corporations are just complicit. I think it's ridiculous. I, I've said it before. It needs to be said again. I wish they'd stick in their, stay in their swim lanes and stick to producing goods and services for people, for society. That's what they do. The Shopify CEO, I'm going to get his letter to his employees out again the next day or so and read it. But you remember that, Rhino? He just said, we're not your family. You only got one. He's not here at work. We're a team. We're not a family. And he made the point that when you start trying to classify employees as family, then you end up keeping the dead weight. We can't let them go. They're family. He's so right about that. You wouldn't expect that, right, from a modern-day CEO to come out and say that, but he just said it. Guys, we're not making any money. we got to make money here. We can't do it with weaklings. We're not a family. And by the way, we're not the government. We can't solve all these social problems. <laughs> I mean, bravo! Uh, and this uh, company, I believe, is from Canada, if I'm not mistaken. Canadian-based company. He said exactly, much better than I, what should be said. Speaking of which, somebody that doesn't speak very well is the chief propagandist for the Biden administration, Karine Jean-Pierre. Here's what she had to say about the economy, since we're talking about that today. Seriously, when some of this feels like smoke and mirrors. Well, let me tell you what the American people should take very, very seriously. Let me remind you oh, of the yeah. Trump tax cut of 2017, $2 trillion that was not paid Wrong. for. Not paid for. Uh, so I want to be very clear about that. And let me also remind the, the American people of what was happening in January of 2020, January 20th of, or 21 of 2020, um, huh? uh, 2021, uh, which was that... <sighs> American businesses, small businesses were shutting down. I just talked about schools. Uh, only 46% of schools were shut down. There was not a real comprehensive uh, COVID uh, response and making sure that people got shots in their arms. And because of the American Rescue Plan, which is something that Republicans refused, refused to work on, uh, refused to uh, vote on, uh, you know, the American Rescue Plan got those schools open, got those small businesses uh, uh, open again, and really made, Made, made us and put us in a place where the economy turned back on. And we saw historic, I mean, don't, don't listen to us, you're giving me data, but there's also data uh, that shows that unemployment is the lowest that it's been in 50, in 50 years. Uh, it also shows that the, the, what we were able to do, even with uh, the strong labor market, uh, that was because of the plan, the economic policies that the president put forth. So he put in the work. And here's the thing, and I'll add more, and I'm, I'm happy to hear your next question. Congressional Republicans have been very, very clear on what they want to do. And this is the choice that the president talks about that Americans have to decide on, they have to make. They have said that the first thing that they're going to repeal is the Inflation Reduction Act, which actually lowers costs for American people. They have said that if they are not able to put Medicare and Social Security on the chopping blocks, right, they're going to essentially hold us hostage. If that doesn't happen, they're going to shut down the government. 
that does not hurt and that does not help inflation that makes it worse that does not help the economy that makes it worse and so that is the stark difference here of what we are talking about uh, about what congressional Democrats and this president want to do there you go boy she's an economic whiz isn't she there's there's just so many untruths in that just like the president's speech from Friday and then he continued it yesterday I need a couple of hours, honestly, and it'd probably bore you to death, but this is who's running our government. This is the way they think. That How many times are they going to repeat the bald-faced lie that Republicans are going to cut Social Security and Medicare? As much as they can if they think it gets people to vote for them. And, and in fact, um, in Biden's remarks Friday... So here we go. One more thing. This is Biden talking. If you're worried about the economy, you need to know this. The Republican leadership in Congress has made it clear they will crash the economy next year by threatening the full faith and credit of the United States for the first time in our history, putting the United States in default unless unless we yield to their demand to cut Social Security and Medicare. You heard that one, right? You all heard them say that. That's what they're saying. Let me be clear. I will not yield. I will not cut Social Security. I will not cut Medicare, no matter how hard they work at it. It's just a lie. So once again, there, Mr. President, you have lied. You are a habitual liar. You are a chronic, pathological liar. You, sir, have violated the Ninth Commandment repeatedly. We're all human. I dare say everybody listening or watching, they've told untruths. Part of being human. But this guy's the president. He does it regularly, repeatedly. And what he just said, what I just read that he said, and what KJP said, they're lies. Republicans have not said. You see, this is the problem, folks. Everybody wants to know, well, when the Republicans are in charge, nothing happens with respect to the deficit and the debt. I agree. And I've made this point so many times, and it's, and it's just the, the accurate mathematical fact. Unless there's some sort of reform to Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, you're not going to get control of the deficit. You're not going to eliminate it. Just not. Those are gigantic programs. They're crashing under their own weight. And when you even bring up, bring up the notion of discussing their fate, which is insolvency, when you bring it up, this is what happens from a political perspective because people don't know, won't do their research, don't understand. You get the other side saying, see the Republicans, they want to end Social Security and Medicare. No. What they've talked about in the plans that Biden discussed was some approach to salvage those programs, to put them on good economic footing so that they will endure and be there for the people who are paying in today. And you just talk about that. Just just mention, we need to have serious discussion about this here, uh, government. And and then this is what happens. You get raked over the coals in the in the political boxing ring, and it's and it's just all lying talking points. So what the president and KJP are saying there is that, you know, we don't have any interest in trying to really get control of the fate of these two major programs. We don't have any interest in that because if we did, well, then you might not vote for us. 
just rest assured that money's going to be there. Well, no, it's not. No, it's not. These are serious economic problems that need to be addressed. So that that's just that's misrepresenting what has been suggested by Republicans, the very small number, by the way, that have actually in the last few months said, yeah, we need to have a serious discussion about this Medicare and Social Security thing. In particular, Ron Johnson in Wisconsin said, you know, every five years we need to look at the budget and we need to look at the solvency of those programs and see if we need to make some adjustments. And what he, and what Kevin McCarthy said recently is, you know, the next time we, we come to a situation where we've got to increase the debt ceiling just to continue to operate the government, we've got to have a serious discussion about this is how we got $31 trillion in debt. If we continue down this road like we are, we're never going to get control over it. And every time we just print more money to take care of our obligations, all it does is exacerbate inflation. And so he wants to talk about that. And this is what you get. This is how it is represented by Joe Biden and his chief propagandist. They're going to end Social Security and Medicare. You heard that, right? That's what they're saying. Let me be clear. I won't do that. So Meaning, if you boil it down, basically Democrats believe that their voters are dumber than a bag of hammers. <laughs> and when you go out and vote for them, they prove them right. That's very true. We're going to step aside for a break. Final segment coming up. we got tickets to give away. It's Brian Kilmeade going to be at the Brandon City Hall on Saturday, November 12th. Stay with us. Rhino's going to do the giveaway. You're listening to Middays with Gerard here on Super Talk Mississippi. Protest era, by the way. Little CCR on the ceasefire text line. Danny says it's not hard to see the lines. How could you be that blind? Mind-boggling. All right, we got uh, Rhino's going to give away some tickets for us. Oh yeah, Fox and Friends host and New York Times best-selling author Brian Kilmeade is making his way to the Magnolia State for just one night. He'll be at the Brandon City Hall tackling some of the day's hottest political topics. And he'll also talk about his best-selling books. The tickets for the show on Saturday, November 12th, are on sale now at Ticketmaster.com. But you have a chance to win a pair of tickets right now on the C Spire text line. All you got to do is text in 601-879-4395. Be the 12th person to text in with Brian's last name, Kilmead. And I won't count off for spelling. So be the 12th person to text into the C Spire text line 601-879-4395 with the key phrase Killmead, and you'll win a pair of tickets to see him on Saturday, November 12th at Brandon City Hall. All right, we got it. Um, so Paula Meridian says they use mental illness as an excuse to not prosecute sometimes in the past. I, I'm certainly not for that. Uh, I think Forrest made it clear that Empower's not for that. But on the other hand, just locking up people that have some sort of clinical mental issues and paying a whole bunch of money for that, that's not really benefiting society. Now, I agree, they're a danger to society. It doesn't really matter what the issue is, whether it's 
uh, some sort of mental affliction or not. They've got to be off the streets, no doubt about it. So, and I do agree, as Thomas pointed out, you know, criminal justice reform efforts. By the way, Trump was a major advocate of criminal justice reform. Who could forget, I can't remember her name, Rhino, the lady, the black lady that was in prison for a long time, finally released, and the only thing she did was exchange some texts on cell phones involved in a drug deal. No, she was, it was phone calls. Phone she calls. was passing the phone number okay. and, yeah. I know it was some sort of communication Long before text. Yeah, okay. Yeah. She was imprisoned in the mid to late 60s, I want to uh, say. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. I don't know where I got the idea of No, that. wait, I'm thinking of somebody else. It was maybe mid-90s. I think But it's still before texting. Well, I thought she had the, the old flip phone is what I saw as evidence, which was maybe. very cryptic. Texting, not certainly to the level. Of it. Whatever she was kind that of was inter- Alice Marie Johnson. That's by her the way. name. Right, it was an intermediary in some of this, and so yeah, she broke the law technically, but she was locked up for a whole long time. And you remember, Trump basically acquitted her. Well, that's right? the way it works in a conspiracy. If you're a part of a conspiracy, you're all guilty of as much as they can convict everyone of. That's true. You're right. So look, bad idea for you to get involved in it to start with. No doubt, you broke the law. The question is, should you be locked up for 30 years for that? Or whatever the period of time. It was a long time. I mean, that, again, we could go down the rabbit hole on that. Um, so, anyhow, uh, let's see. We got folks that are texting in. Kilmeade, right? He's coming to the uh, Brandon City Hall on November the 12th. Yep, we got a winner. Great. Rhino sent me a tweet, this looks like. of uh, It's a tweet that features a, a letter that was sent on behalf of a number of Twitter workers. It's signed. Signed, Twitter workers. This would be to what appears to be their new CEO in the works, Elon Musk, who was announced he's probably going to eliminate 75% of the employees. Now, Twitter, from a financial perspective, is terrible. From an operational perspective, is terrible. Again, Forget that it's a platform where people go out there and and express their views and attack others and promote all kinds of narratives and ideologies and use it for all, all sorts of purposes, right, in our society these days. And it is a big influencer, a big factor in policymaking and in elections. I would argue that it drives corporate policy as well. That's why I call it woke insurance. My gosh, if you do something they don't like, the woke Twitter mob take to the platform and absolutely excoriate you. Anyhow, so Rhino sent it to me, and it's a list of four demands. Demands. We demand leadership to respect the platform and the workers who maintain it by committing to preserving the current headcount. So it doesn't matter if you're just bleeding billions of dollars. You got to keep us all employed. These are people that don't understand basic profit motive and necessity of private sector safety. We demand that leadership does not discriminate against workers on the basis of their race, gender, disability, sexual orientation, blah, blah, blah. You mean the way they do now against people who they disagree with? We demand Elon Musk explicitly commit to preserve our benefits, those both listed in the agreement and not such as remote work. 
and we want a severance. We want severance policies for all workers before and after they change any ownership. We demand transparent, prompt, and thoughtful communication around our working com- conditions. They're awfully demanding, aren't they? That's not how it works here. This is what's wrong with this country right now. We're, we're just a bunch of spoiled damn brats, and it's incumbency, Rhino, I'm telling you, because they don't got to worry about how they're going to eat. We're out of time here. We're back in the studio tomorrow. Until then, stay safe and God bless everyone. A Super Talk Mississippi media production.